Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast, Nightcode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Michael Wallace about strategic healthcare initiatives and strategic healthcare alliances. And I always learn a lot when I talk to Mike. He and I have, have the opportunity to work out in the gloom together. We didn't talk about that, but, but it's been a lot of fun to, to kind of bond and, and build some trust with him. Um, so please enjoy our conversation. And as always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. I want to talk about the MyDay multifocal for a sec. We had the opportunity to do a preclinical trial with this lens this last summer. And there were a couple of things that I thought were really helpful. The first one is that it is different than a lot of the multifocals that we've used before in our practices where patients, especially early emerging presbyopes, really managed the, it didn't cause a lot of additional uh, distance blur for them. And the other thing that was really helpful was, because we've never been involved in a clinical trial before, was to understand uh, the sort of questions that we might ask our patients. And we ask a pa- our patients a lot of questions about their patient about their satisfaction with a contact lens, but what we weren't doing was actually having them score that themselves. So one of the parts of this that was really interesting to me was asking patients on a scale of one to 10, how they would score their vision, how they would score their comfort in their current lenses, and then how they would do the same on their uh, new lenses. And it showed me a lot of times where patients would say they were happy, might rate their vision as a six or a seven. And um, and then it also reframed their thinking about their current satisfaction in their lenses and allowed me to open up the door to offering other solutions. So if you haven't tried something like that in your clinical practice, I would encourage you to. And I would also encourage you to try the MyDay Multifocal for your patients. What do you think about your macular degeneration supplements for patients in category one through category four? You feel like you have a really good way to distinguish between what type of supplement you're using and why you're using it? I'd encourage you to check out the evidence behind MacuHealth. We've used it in our practice for a number of years now, and we have a real great solution for patients in category three and four, as well as supplements for patients who don't need the full AREDS formulation. We've been really impressed in our practice by the way it performs and also by the patient acceptance of those supplements. And MacuHealth has also been a great partner in our practice to help us with resources and tools to help us describe and define why their supplements are more bioavailable than some of the things that patients can find at a supermarket or a drugstore. And the most important thing for me about having a supplement in our practice for patients to have access to is I can know whether or not they're getting exactly what I'm prescribing. So that seems to be really helpful for my patients because they're not scouring through the aisles trying to pick up something and having that 10 minute evaluation of what type of supplement they need. So if you haven't started using MacuHealth in your practice yet, you can find all their information in the show notes and they definitely have something that is worth your patient's time and worth your patient's vision. I'm, I'm not seeing patients very much at all. I've got an associate, and uh, so I'm mostly spending my time, um, you know, doing administrative stuff or working as a consultant now for vision source and growth and, and uh, kind of like not semi-retired, but you could certainly call it that. So, so my schedule is fairly wide open to do stuff. And, you know, I don't have nine kids running around me anymore. I got them off to college, so, you know, I got time. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Well, thanks for doing this. I, I think it is interesting to think about strategic healthcare initiatives. And, and actually, when I was introduced to this idea, it was years ago with Paul Williams, and he was doing a well, lot with uh, Cliff. Yeah, he is. Uh, I think he had some relationships with uh, Cliff Robertson, who was I. Uh, so he was the um, head of CHI, which kind of moved to moved into Omaha 
I guess it was probably right. like five to eight years ago. So I guess, you know, the thing for me is it sort of fell off a little bit, but there's so much value in strategic healthcare initiatives. So I think the listeners probably would benefit by hearing sort of what, what you, uh, what you're working on in the back end and how we can think about, uh, strategic, strategic healthcare initiatives. And then we'll, we'll all kind of pick your brain about that. Sure. 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 So, um, so as we lead this off, I, I have to jokingly say, cause you know, you work your butt off. Uh, for optometry and educating and, and private practice and all that. And so in a way, we, you know, we kind of dedicate this in a way to the future optometrist, right? And so I took the opportunity to wear my, my uh, uh, Indiana University shirt for my daughter who's in her last year. Uh, of course, I call it I-O-U instead of I-U. But um, anyway, yeah. uh, she called me the other day. What is tuition now? Day. Yeah. Well, it's out of state. I think she's paying 55 a year because it's out of state for her. But the interesting oh. thing, she called me on Friday or something like that and said, Dad, I got to tell you what I did today. I said, what? She goes, I did my first YAG and two SLTs. And man, talk about a proud moment. And this is the way, uh, future of optometry. And so, you know, so I applaud you and others. And, and, and years ago when I was fighting those scope battles, um, we're doing this for them and doing it for our communities and doing it for the um, – for the profession to, to continue strong, especially independent optometry, that's my focus. Um, but nonetheless, um, I thought <laughs> I thought it was a good opportunity to do a shout out to, to my daughter Noah at uh, at um, IU. So anyway, well, I think that's great. I, but I want to pause you because you made a made a point of you know there's something special about independent optometry, and you and I have discussed this before. But you know, um, I think a lot of times people. At, uh, say, well, it doesn't matter how you practice. It matters. It doesn't matter where you practice. It matters how you practice. Um, and I think that's probably true to some degree. But why do you think, in your opinion, independent optometry is the the best way to practice the way you want to practice? Self-control. You have control over how you practice. And nobody else is telling you how to practice or limiting your practice, other than the legislative battles we've all fought for. Uh, and earned, but uh, self-determination is the key to our um, our livelihood, our profession, the best way to provide patient care, in my opinion, uh, the best way to provide patient care cost efficiently, in my opinion, and um, in our own self-respect. There's just so many reasons why I like that. Now, I've practiced in every environment, okay, a multidisciplinary, commercial, uh, center director for TLC way back when, you know, 25 years ago, and then in private practice. So I've done it all, and uh, I respect and enjoy every one of those environments for different reasons. But for the whole gestalt of it, private practice gives us the best opportunity to propagate our profession and provide great patient care. Yeah, so so then that uh, if that is the best way, then we have to be involved in additional healthcare um, alliances and or strategic healthcare alliances. And in doing that, it makes it really challenging because we are completely, well, in theory, much more independent. We can do things that we believe is best for our patients and then subsequently can run our businesses the same way. So how do you, tell me about strategic practice, healthcare alliances and why I should care as independent practice. Um, yeah. And we'll go so, from there. Yeah. Yeah, so let's call it almost pseudo-independence in a way, um, because listen, um, even primary uh, care physicians, 
for many years were totally 100% independent, and uh, that was very possible for them. But with the uh, inroads of um, government rules and regulations, and we all know this, compliance issues, it became almost impossible for primary care physicians to be fully independent. And so the idea of primary care physicians uh, being independent is by the wayside. So um, that means that in the local communities, as an independent practice, we are up against uh, kind of a, a yin and yang. We have personal relationships with uh, providers in the area that we would like to continue relationship, uh, referral relationships with. But we also understand and know that they now have people directing them. They have uh, chief medical officers or medical directors or executive level decision makers that are telling them what their referral patterns have to be. So we have a, a, a kind of a problem uh, or an opportunity on our hands um, as independent providers ourselves. And you know, we, we want to make sure we have access to those pathways of uh, coordinating patient care with physicians um, but at the same time, you know, unless we're in the game or um, on, the, on the right team, we may lose some of those, those uh, pathways. So it's important to us as independents to, to uh, continue those local relationships because they are gold. But at the same time, um, we need to network uh, with, let's call it local alliances, if not national alliances, but local groups of like-minded um, professionals uh, that provide care at the highest level of their scope of practice so that we can align together and go to uh, large health care uh, provider groups or, uh, or health payer groups or hospital groups that own uh, PCPs. We have to make sure that we can go to them in some way and have the conversation about what we can do, why we do it well, and why we do it efficiently for them to save money and provide excellent patient care. If you can make that argument and you have a, a cohesive group that, again, they're all independent, but if you have a leadership around that group that you can say, this is what we need to do together, uh, and you can make that argument to your group, and then you can sell that to a, a, a provider group that's a medical provider group, you have the opportunity to keep those, those pathways or channels of uh, referrals open. Um, but if you're completely independent, that's a, that's a tough sell to make because, again, they want these uh, executive teams want some control over how their patients are cared for, uh, what, are the, what are the criteria in which somebody's in your group, uh, and what are you going to do if you find something uh, that you need to do extra testing for, and how are you going to uh, provide that care you know, completely open with every test in the world or some degree of um, limitations. You know, what are you going to do? They they want some control. They want to be able to audit. They want to be able to measure uh, HEDIS measures, and that's a whole other conversation, of course, of which um, I'm very familiar with. But nonetheless, some degree of relationship is necessary, and it's almost impossible to do it exclusively independent. So let's call it pseudo independent. And um, national alliance groups uh, that do it well do it for real, not say they do it, but do it for real, uh, is the first step of that. And then as that trickles down to state or multi-state regions, um, that's the second step. Like in Michigan, um, one group specifically that uh, I've been working closely with to establish a relationship, uh, 
McLaren is what they're called. And they have a huge uh, footprint in Michigan, which matches the demographic footprint that uh, my alliance, Vision Source, uh, is uh, aligned with. But they're also in Indiana. They're also in northern Ohio. They're also, uh, you know, in probably northern Wisconsin. So it's great to be part of an alliance that I can I can go to, to McLaren and say, hey, look, at this is our footprint in Michigan, but we also have, uh, you know, another 300 practices in Indiana, uh, Ohio, Wisconsin, and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden it gets their attention. If you can make the argument yeah. that you're great providers and you know the whole spiel. Well, I, I mean, I do, but I think what's interesting is to try to break down that. that so obviously the reason for um, the need for a group of, of ODs to come in and provide that care is because uh, is because those those primary care physicians don't have the ability to offload that care to somebody else. So what, um, like, why not? So the normal patterns would be that they would try to send them to their ophthalmologist buddy from medical school. And, uh, and, and presumably those ophthalmologists would be on the insurance panels because they would do surgery in those hospital systems. And so they have easy access to those insurance panels or those, uh, those HMOs or whatever kind of the locked in group is. And most of the time optometrists don't have access to those panels because we don't do surgery in those hospitals or probably the, the more accurate, um, description is we don't typically have hospital privileges in those hospitals uh, in the bigger cities because they don't they don't need optometrists to have hospital privileges in the, or perceived need for it. And so with a health with a strategic healthcare alliance, you're saying, look, we've got 130, whatever, maybe it's 100, maybe it's 50, I don't know. But um, guys that can provide or and gals that can provide services in your in your community. Uh, and then and that, is that correct, Michael? Yes, um, except that uh, the ophthalmologists have extreme leverage um, to right. execute whatever they want because when they're doing surgery there, they're, they are driving revenue into a hospital. So it's not just that they have hospital privileges, they have leverage and that's what we, uh, that we somewhat battle or overcome. So yeah, so, so yeah, so then the conversation goes to, um, I'm in a conversation with a, a provider group or healthcare provider um, payer group. The conversation is is this: uh, is I've got great ophthalmological surgeon colleagues that I refer to uh, when the patient needs cataract surgery, and when you have a diabetic patient, I make sure that di- diabetic patient is in my chair within two days or three days of that referral because I know how important that um, that result is for you, both for your HEDIS measurements and for everything else. But the real key is. That diabetic patient to me is gold because I expect to have that patient as an annuity in their family forever. However, um, my surgical colleagues, uh, that that exam slot is worth $2,000, not $300 to them. <laughs> and so it's not a priority typically for them. And they're going to do it because you're good friends with the PCP and all that. And that's very important. They provide great care. Uh, or maybe the optometrist that uh, they hired is t- providing that care. But the point is... When you send me that diabetic patient, I'm going to see him in two days. You're going to have your your communication in, uh, on day three. You're going to have everything checked off on the HEDIS measure immediately. And then I'm going to make sure that patient is healthy. But I'm going to refer them for appropriate surgical care when that time is right. My priority is not taking out a 2025 cataract. My priority is making sure they don't have diabetes, won't get diabetic retinopathy, 
um, and they're back in your chair with a proper education. That's a different priority, I think, from our colleagues in, in surgery. I make that argument. Yeah, I think that's a yeah, I think that's a really good point because I want to make this I want to make this point is that um, when you know a lot of times I talk about and you've heard me talk about this idea of a comprehensive care model or a total patient care model where whereby we have this comprehensive exam that allows us to detect all the things that this patient could potentially have and uh, and then when those patients have those things they become um, we, we have to serve that patient. And by serving that patient, that's a pillar of our practice. Well, ophthalmology is no different, but our common two pillars in our profession generally are comprehensive exam. And then, I mean, I'm just telling you historically uh, from the perception is then comprehensive exam. Then if if you need glasses or contact lenses, I can sell you those. That becomes a a pillar in my practice. It's something you needed, but it's a pillar in my practice. Well, what you're saying is ophthalmology does the exact same thing. They say, well, look, I'll do the comprehensive exam. I'll do the diabetes exam, whatever. It's, it's fine. But I don't really want that. I want the pillar, which is cataract surgery or glaucoma surgery or retinal surgery. So they do the same thing. Um, but we have so many more opportunities to offer that patient, I believe, better care and also more comprehensive care for all the things they have. And that becomes a bigger value to the healthcare alliance and the healthcare system. And so tell me how... When, when you talk about the value of that proposition, uh, how do you sell the value of optometry? Not just the, the quick turnaround, but what's the value? Well, the value is, is the extra five minutes I'm going to spend talking about uh, blood sugar control. And the extra five minutes I'm spending talking about not smoking or lifestyle choices or the things that they need to do to continue to maintain good health care and good eye care and all the things that diabetes affects uh, uh, broadly in their body. Which they, How many times have you had a patient come in and said, oh, I didn't know diabetes affects the eyes. Well, I didn't know diabetes affected the, yeah. you know, uh, the kidneys. It happens all the time. How could they not know that? It's because somebody's not spending the time. Or maybe they are, but it's so much information to digest. Even when I go to the doctor and I spend 10 minutes with them, I'm still like five minutes later, like, what did he say about this? So I get it. I totally get it. It's, it's a message that needs to be repeated often. And so the time, the 15 minute or 20 minute time I'm spending with a patient, maybe it's uh, 10 minutes of data gathering and maybe it's five minutes of evaluation. But the five minutes of time I'm spending with that patient discussing the priorities of their health care uh, are much more valuable comprehensively. And the other argument I make to uh, payer groups is I'm not doing a diabetic retina exam. I'm doing a comprehensive uh, vision exam, health ophthalmologic exam, that's also talking about dry eye or glaucoma or macro generation or, and that's another whole story with high risk complications and things like that. But there's, a, there's an interesting caveat that you touched on that needs a little bit of a maybe conversation, maybe not now, but in the future. And that is yeah, let's this, have term, it. Comp- this term comprehensive eye exam. I wrote a paper mm. 10, 15, 20 years ago uh, that was uh, just published in the local Michigan Optometric Association. And I said to myself, we are shooting ourselves in the foot with this term comprehensive eye exam as part of a managed vision care exam. We are, as a profession, we've shot ourselves in the foot because now all of a sudden we're getting $45, $50 reimbursements for what we're calling a comprehensive eye exam compared to our medical colleagues getting $200, $250 for the same service that they're calling a comprehensive eye examination, but they're doing it under medical. 
I don't see there's an answer to that at this point, but this whole concept of of uh, where our profession is going because we wanted to be in the big boys club may have shot us in the foot. We may have needed to to distinctly say these are these managed vision care exams. Maybe we should have been changing that narrative to screenings, you know, vision screenings, uh, healthcare screenings. So the immediate moment an anomaly was detected, that exam is over from that perspective. And now it's now it's either come on back for your medical comprehensive examination. Now, I know that that's water under the bridge, but we better start thinking about language. <laughs> What's the old saying? Language matters. I'll tell you, I, I am I am totally on board with you about this. And, and I don't know that you can describe, you know, I, I've gone back and forth a lot. There's one of my buddies, um, Kyle Cludy, who I run with. He wasn't he didn't work out with us in D.C., uh, but um, but I run with him every week and he and I have, have gone back and forth about how to, how do how do you describe, um, a, what I was just describing to you, like, how do you describe comprehensive eye care in a different way? How do you describe a total patient care model in a different way? What's, what that is intuitively understandable to the lay person to distinguish that from what you're talking about, which is a, what was probably more appropriate to say a routine eye exam, right? When everything is routine. But even then, you can't know if that's routine until you've actually seen the patient. And so, you know, I really push people and, and I've made people mad. In fact, I've got a new associate and I think I kind of made her mad one of the first days she, she was here because um, because I, I'll ask a question and I'm going to do this time and time again. But I'll ask a question. And I'll say when I'm speaking to a, a large audience, I'll say, OK, let's say you have a patient that comes in on XXX um, uh routine with a routine exam coverage and they just have complaints that they want new glasses and they're 42 years old and you see a pressure of 27 and 21 on eye care so first i'll ask them how many people uh use eye care tonometry or nct or you know some other screening device tonopin and you know everybody's hand goes up and then i'll say okay if, if you get a pressure of 22 and 27 uh on your pretest and that patient uh is 42 years old what do you do next and everybody says everybody says recheck with goldman I say, well, why do you recheck with Goldman? You've already done the test. You've already been paid to do the test. Now that now you are the physician, and you can make the determination on whether or not this is erroneous uh, um, finding, um, or you can say, you know, we found an erroneous finding. We need to dig into this deeper. I, I need to understand better why this is why there's asymmetry here, and why there's this, and why there's that. But but people get upset because they're like, but I don't want to have people back unnecessarily. Well. Do you think your Do you think the uh, primary care doctor checks an A one C and then the A one C comes back at at eight point five and they say, well, let's just recheck that again today because that was that was high. I don't really know if I trust that. No, they don't do that. And so, like, right. we we just have to get out of our head of like this this idea of a comprehensive eye exam. It is to detect all these other things, but it's not to attend to them. Right? Let's detect them. Then we have them back to attend to them. Otherwise, we're going to be we're going to be kind of lost in this um, in this rat race of not really understanding how to run our practice. And and really, I think it harms patient care because we we just say, well, no big deal. Let's just let's just recheck it here, and we recheck and recheck and recheck until we get a normal finding, or we don't know what what we're getting, and so we don't understand how to get reimbursed and how to communicate these things. So we'll just send it to the ophthalmologist down the street because I don't know, I can't really. Right. And, and that's so frustrating. And if you don't have that figured out um, in your practice and you don't have that 
a way to address those those things in your practice, you will um, be very frustrated when you're trying to provide a, a, a total suite of care for patients who have diabetes and macular degeneration and dry eye, et cetera. So I don't know how, I, I'm like you, I don't know how we better communicate that to the public, well, but probably we just need well, to you better have your script to our profession. Well, uh, you know, uh, you better have your script. And I've taught my associates over the years and, uh, and I've said, you have to have a script that you're ready to say every time, every patient when they fail, listen, Mrs. Jones, I'm so sorry, but um, you're here for your regular, uh, what we call your um, eyeglasses exam today. Uh, however, some of the tests show that, that possibly more significant issues exist in the area of glaucoma or macular degeneration. Or, uh, uh. So why don't we today, since your primary concern was these glasses, I'm happy to take care of that for you today. But understand we've detected something that is a visual uh, sight-threatening disease that must be evaluated and let's have you back to do that under your medical care understand this was just your vision screening and now because of this other condition that may be significant to the future of your vision we need to have you back and do your comprehensive comprehensive evaluation that takes in not only your ophthalmological health but all the other systems of your body that relate to the to your eyes Oh, you mean something wrong with my kidney could also affect my eyes? Well, yes, your eyes are part of your body and not exclusive. They're not a silo. And so <laughs> something shorter than all that, but some script that anticipates what they're going to say, what they're going to be perturbed about, because, well, I want my vision can't. You have to have a script ready to go that's brief, that yeah. anticipates that. Brief and easy, but distinct and firm. Yeah, you have to believe it. You have to believe it. And I think so. Sure. So when you're talking about we, we could go on and on about that. But but um, but when if we want to take, stay on strategic healthcare initiatives, how do you parlay <laughs> right. that idea into making sure that you're communicating that effectively uh, so that the primary care doctor understands that maybe they don't even care when that when they come in, that patient has a, a managed vision care plan. And then they have their medical plan that the primary care doctor sent them in to have their diabetes evaluation. Uh, what does that sound like in your practice? How do you articulate that? Well, to the that, yeah. So that conversation starts with the PCP. Okay. And, and that's part of it. And, and they won't remember it, but I want them to understand what's going on in our practice. So when the patient comes back to them and complains, well, you sent me to that doctor over there and he billed my medical insurance and that cost me more than my $10 copay. So I start the conversation there and say, you know, just understand that when you refer your patient over to me, of course, I'm going to do it under their medical plan. And they may have a vision plan and, and there may be some confusion when the patient arrives. So please make sure your staff co contributes to the conversation about we are sending you to Dr. Wallace for a medical eye examination related to your X, Y, or Z. Patient presents. In the staff at the front desk, when, when the patient says, here's my VSP card or here's my you know, whatever card, the staff says, thank you very much. This will be useful if you need to get any routine glasses. But today, your examination is under your medical insurance. Your copay is X, your deductible is X, and we will take that up front today. Up front on that copay. So that, so that later on they don't say something about, well, that was up front. So it's clear to begin with. And then if there's additional tests later or, or you return them back, it's fine. It's already, it's already clear. That's what happens in ophthalmological offices. You collect the copay or the partial deductible at the front desk where, where it's clear and understood 
before you and I have to get into that conversation because our physician yep. colleagues don't have that conversation. The staff has to be comfortable having that conversation and they collect it up front and you see the doctor, you know, Mrs. Smith, I'm so glad that you're here today. We understand how, how dangerous diabetes is with your eyes and how you can lose your vision. Let's take care of your copay today so that when you're seeing your doc the doctor, you can have your attention fully on what he has to do to help you save your vision. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I, I think, yeah. I, I mean, I think that it has to be a, it has to be a deep down. I mean, if, if where I see it working well, where it, it always hiccups is the doctor ha doesn't have a clear guidance to the team. Uh, so there's this kind of wishy-washy. Um, and uh, if somebody pushes back on something, they don't want to be, uh, they don't want to have any, perceived confrontation. And so when you're not forceful in, in what you're doing as the right thing, then, um, then patients can kind of move things around and you don't have a, if you don't have a good solid answer as to, well, why do I have to come back for that doc? Well, why can't I, why can't you do it all today? Well, your insurance companies don't, you know, you have great insurance. One allows for when you just need glasses and contact lens prescription changes. One allows for all the other diseases like diabetes, glaucoma, macular degeneration, dry eye. But the problem is I can't do both of them on the same day. So you can pick, you know, we can pick which one we, we're going to do. Today you're in for this one, right? That's what you told us. So we'll do that and we'll have this other one on a separate visit. And I think having, like, if, if you have that conversation, just like I had, just like you had, um, whether it's you or your team, right? And it probably, you're right, it's, it is your team. But, but the point is, is if the doctor can't have that conversation comfortably with authority, then the patient, patient doesn't feel confident that, that you knew what you're talking about. And so if you don't have that in place in your practice, you will, you will get frustrated. Patients will get upset. They will be right. confused. Um, and they'll think you're trying to milk the system, which you're just, you, you just have to apologize. Like, this is the way the system works. Can't do them both. You said it. You said it. It cannot be delivered with an arrogant and careless um, uh, disposition. It must be either yourself or your staff member says, I'm, I'm really sorry. I understand how you feel um, and how frustrating this is as a healthcare. And I know you're here and you took a day off from work. I just want you to understand that relative to your to the, the, the problem you're here today, this is the way we are um, um, forced um, or audited or whatever word we want to use. It is necessary for us to move forward to take care of your eyes. Today. And your staff cannot take on that, you know, that attitude that we all know when we go to the physician's office and, and some front desk person's got their smirky little look on our face. Now, typically, our offices are amazing with our front office staff. We got to oh, make yeah. sure our staff's disposition is very, very firm, but sweet, understanding, understanding um, uh, uh, you know, considerate. All that's incredibly important because when that patient walks through the door, their anxiety already went up. They're already yeah. anxious and they're already ready for a fight because they've never been into any physician's office without a fight. So we have to be, we have to be understanding of that. It, that doesn't mean we change the way we do things, but we have to be understanding of that. And so uh, when we have, even on like some of the Facebook platforms or even our own staff says, oh, I had this patient and how dare they say that? Well, how dare they say that? That's what they're thinking to begin with. They already have... They're already, right. you know, uh, swinging at the at the ball. So you've got to understand where they're coming from, so you can present and anticipate in a considerate, um, understanding manner, but yet firm. 
you know? Yeah. Anyway, that's another whole topic. Yeah. So to me, there's no, I, I'm, I'm right with you. I think, um, you know, to, so you've, you've, if you were going to start building some of these, uh, relationships where do you go how do you connect people how do you connect ods together and then where do you start i mean you you and i've talked about some kind of low-hanging fruit but where do you start okay there's no doubt that uh let's say we've moved on uh and we're talking about our local uh relationship with pcps and specialists and others and i I think that's what you're you're getting at yeah so i think obviously uh obviously the pcps uh you need to be in those offices regularly not one and done you need to go in every every six months say hey i'm here any questions any issues with communication between our offices i really want to make sure you're getting your diabetic reports and and your reports on uh, on those patients with hypertensive retinopathy or those reports and you got to kind of say all those things so they so they even they go oh yeah you guys take care of that too oh yeah you're you're worried about thyroid eye disease oh yeah or macrogenerate you you have those conversations often so you're in those offices every six months for five minutes maybe with the receptionist they almost always pull the doctor out just to say hi great you must do that but that's that's the tip of the iceberg the 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 rheumatologist or even the neurologist that doesn't have a visual field in his office or or all these other specialists they don't know that we take care of patients with um you know um high risk uh, long-term medications they don't know we take care of uh, all the patients that have you know uveitis they don't know we take care of all all those patients we need to be in there saying hey you know what if you can't get your patient into your normal referral channels uh, or even if you can i'm happy to take care of those patients i'll take care of them immediately and they'll be back in your office and they'll be they will be treated very well but every let's face it every subspecialist is interested in some form of the ophthalmological complications of the things they are they are uh, managing so we need to make sure those subspecialists know that we are in the game. And if we don't do that, we're in trouble. But again, that's, that's only the next tier of the pyramid, okay, or the iceberg. There's, there's a number of other opportunities. The obvious one is urgent care. Urgent care PAs, mostly, hate managing eye stuff. They hate it. And so if we're not letting urgent care managers, urgent care providers, or the urgent care medical directors know that, hey, if you got a patient with uh, with foreign bodies, we're happy to see those patients. We do that all day long, and I know how, how hard they are to get out of their eyes, and how, you know, kind of dramatize it a little bit, I suppose. But either way, <laughs> I want those patients, and they're happy to get rid of them if they've got a resource. Even the managers or their, let's say it's a multi-location um, urgent care that has a medical director, even they want, want those out of their offices. So we have to make sure they know that we are happy to take care of, of, uh, of foreign bodies and red eyes. And, and again, you know, red eyes can be pretty complicated. Now we know oftentimes they're easily managed, but they don't want to manage those. So, so urgent cares are a critical component of that. Another really important one, and I mentioned this the other day and I'm doing a lot of research on this now. In the past, dialysis centers, who would have thought dialysis centers want anything to do with eye doctors, right? Well, yeah. in the past, and I'm doing some research on this now, dialysis centers had their own small local uh, uh, accountable care organizations because dialysis patients were so expensive that the large accountable care organizations wanted nothing to do with them because they, they couldn't afford them. So uh, for a while there, and I'm not sure this is still in existence, but Medicare had a special program that allowed... Um, these dialysis centers and their nephrologists 
to do the value-based healthcare or comprehensive health of, of these patients in rural dialysis. That means they were accountable to HEDIS measures with diabetic retinopathy and all the other things that are important. Mm. It also meant that they benefit from those patients being diagnosed from us with macular degeneration or dry eye or glaucoma, all long-term diseases. So yeah. lo and behold, you go to a dialysis center, they need an eye doctor to take care of the patients for their HEDIS measures. So the research I'm doing now and part of my role is how do I get up to the, to the big decision makers comprehensively rather than just my local um, dialysis center. But that doesn't stop you and I in our local community from establishing relationships with nef nephrologists. Absolutely critical. Nobody understands that or knows that. Yeah. And then yeah. I also mentioned at well, some point, you know. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So the other conversation, a lot of people don't understand this. Um, we get a lot of foreign bodies from the local, you know, uh, car shop. You know, the guy's grinding out the yeah. aluminum wheels so the so the guy's not losing air in his tires, and and they get a foreign body, and they're all going to urgent care. We should be going into those car shops and advancing. Hey, here's my card. I'm right down the street. Next time you get a foreign body, just come on in. I'll have you done in ten minutes. Get you back to the get you back. Uh, you know, talk to the manager. And in fact, uh, we don't have to do this through your workers' comp if you don't want to. We we'll just do this out of pocket. It's a lot less expensive. It's a lot quicker. It's a lot cleaner. We'll just get get, get you taken care of and make sure you're fine. You know, you can have these little relationships. I don't know. I'm not talking legality. I'm not a lawyer. Okay, and that's my that's my uh, that's my defense for everything. You know, I'm not a lawyer. I just try to take care of patients. You know, ask uh, ask forgiveness, not permission. But you have these local relationships. You take care of these these patients. You're doing the best thing for them. You're doing the best thing for your local community, and you're getting them back in the job, and uh, and you're saving the urgent care of the worry of taking out foreign bodies they don't know anything about. So you get into all these, yeah. you know. Uh, 10-minute oil change places that they're constantly looking up and getting, you know, crap in their eyes. You're going to the body shops. You're going to the mechanics. You're going to the local tool and get dye shops. And you're saying, hey, you know, um, or if you're in the Rotary Club or if you're in your local Lions Club, these guys are oftentimes part of that. You make sure you, you tell them those patients need to come to me De definitively. Yeah. Those patients need to come to me, it, not the emergency it is amazing at two dollars yeah, $3,000. It is amazing. Yeah. It's amazing that, that, that we haven't just owned just, you know, even in large cities, we haven't owned those, those from bodies from urgent cares and, and emergency rooms, but you're right. You know, I, that's another great place. We've got a, there's a big auto body shop in, um, in Omaha that has about five or six locations. And, um, you know, as you know, like removing a foreign body, it's pretty straightforward. And, um, and you know, you can wiggle those into your schedule all day long and uh and not and not get behind and so the um but but anyway we see we see the owners of that shop and they just start they just started sending us all of their their guys that were getting stuff in their eyes and and the guys love it because they're kind of you know unfortunately they're they're they don't want to be out of work you know they don't want to be out of work they don't want to be down they, they most of them don't want to like be looked at as a burden they're like oh that's stupid i didn't put my glasses on they sure. they know they did something wrong right uh, and then, the, like you said, the auto body shop just wants to take care of so they can get these guys back. And if you can get them in and out, um, yeah, I mean, we see that all the time. So you're, you're absolutely right. It's something yeah. that I think a lot of us don't think about. So I'm going to summarize here, Mike, because I'm going to be respectful of your time. It really starts with building this network of starting kind of toward the bottom, auto body shops, uh, urgent cares, primary care physician. And then you get, uh, you know, kind of elevated a, high, a little higher level where you have primary care physicians, 
Uh, and then you have your kind of your, um, well, you could probably say your nephrologists and your, uh, your, your um, dialysis centers would maybe be a little bit ab above that, kind of a smaller piece, but a unique piece. And then um, neurologists, uh, rheumatologists, and then your, and then through those relationships, if you've, if, if you've established those relationships among healthcare providers, then you'll be able to develop relationships to the, the pinnacle of the people who are making larger decisions. And if you're working in your zone within your community with other optometrists to be able to say, look, you send to any one of these 10 locations and we are going to get you in. We guarantee you we're going to get you in within two exactly. days or three days and we're going to get you back. And, and everybody's committed. Now you have a fourth force that can be reckoned with. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then the piece that relates to alliances, real or imagined, is, is the group you are aligned with truly making these inroads or making these attempts on multi-state or national a lot of people are saying they're doing it i don't only know of one that's doing it and so that's part of the equation because there will be a day when large regional alliances rule in the healthcare arena michael wallace thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it